alive, we wouldn't be here today. We'd have no real meaning for being here if he wasn't alive. Then I think about the blood of the lamb who cleanses us from our sin and, and the fact that uh, he was placed in a grave. <laughs> and, of course, the grave thought it could hold him as much as Satan thought he could win. And, of course, we know that, that the uh, story changed rather quickly on the third day, don't we? Uh, that the fact that uh, Jesus is alive because he's alive, because even while we were still yet sinners, he gave his life for us. I mean, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? If you really think about it, we weren't there physically, but we were there in spirit when they were crucifying him. We were there hurling insults at him. We were there spitting at him. We were there mocking him. In reality, we were probably the, there beating his brow. Yet in the midst of that, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Therefore, God's demonstrated his love toward us that even while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were at our worst before him, he was at his best for us. Amen? And I hope that, I, that on this Memorial Day weekend, when we uh, honor those who have given their lives and whom we have lost in our lives that have impacted our lives, what better way to think about that Memorial Day when uh, he gave his life for us? And then, obviously, he took his life back up. So we praise the Lord uh, for that. So many good things to hear this morning. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to minister down at the Stowe Center or to be there. Uh, Brother Rich does a great job. In fact, the Stowe Center, uh, Doherty Stowe, uh, whom it's named after, is celebrating its 50th year uh, the 50th anniversary of the Stowe Mission uh, this year. And so uh, that, that particular place, on the, what originally was on the, uh, the west side of Parsons Avenue, now on the east side of Parsons Avenue, has been impacting lives there for 50 years. When my family and I first moved to Columbus, Ohio, uh, when we moved here, we actually, I went to Beck Elementary School for a little while, which is a rock's throw from Parsons there. And one of the interesting things about being at the Stowe is it really sits on the precipice of the reality of some of the division we see in the world today. If you go just a little bit to the west, maybe a block and a half at most, you're in German Village, and German Village has got million-dollar homes in a very you know, eclectic and a very, very nice community. And then if you go 50 yards to the east, you find houses that are run down and, and beat up and, and all kind of crime. In fact, a year ago, uh, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, literally in the parking lot across the street from the stove as the, as the women were working there, a young man shot and killed two people literally right in the middle of the daytime, no more than probably here to the parking lot from the front door of the stove. And yet, there are people who go and volunteer, as Rich uh, reminded us, and as Jason Day and his wife Ellie also reminded us, that people are still there. No matter how tough the ministry gets, they're going to continue to minister there. So we, we praise the Lord, and I hope that you will do all you can. I know that I'm a member of Bloom, and we try to do our best to serve there once a month. And I hope that you're doing all you can, not only in going down and volunteering. You don't have to necessarily go with the church. You can go on your own. There's always something to do down there, and they're just doing tons and tons of ministry down there, so I'm grateful for that. I was thinking this morning, too, you know, the, the Word of God tells us that Jesus said, I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, we just sang a song about entreating him to come into this place, certainly this place. And we think about the names of God on the wall. Certainly we would entreat him to come to this physical place, but more importantly, does he come to this physical place? 
Do we entreat him and ask him to come into our heart, to be with us, to encourage us, that we might yield to him and grow in him? And so all those thoughts racing through my mind, and of course, with it being a giving week, the other thing that really jumps off the page at me, have any of you have uh, struggled with your faith to the point where you, you kind of hold up the ideal, but you have to deal with the real? Anybody been there? Where you just struggle with your faith. You know, here, here's this pinnacle of God's truth, but yet the reality of it isn't necessarily true in my life all the times. So maybe at times, but not all the time. So as I, I, I want to speak to you this morning about missions, and I know this is a, a missions giving week for Stowe, and there's, um, you know, we just came through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for uh, North American Mission Board missions, and so this idea. And uh, three weeks ago today, Jenny and I uh, would have been in Jerusalem. Uh, it would have been our last of 11 days there. We had never been before. I don't know that we'll ever go again. If we have the opportunity, I hope we would. But we had never been there before. And I mean, I have a couple theology degrees, and I would like to think that I know my Bible pretty well. Um, but it's one thing when you hear about the Bible or you envision it in your minds, and then when you actually see what you've been reading about your whole life, or at least for me since I was age 12. And so for Jenny and I, last week, we, uh, in the 11 days prior to that, or three weeks ago, we were able literally just to go all over the nation of Israel, tracing the steps of the Old Testament saints, and more importantly, the steps of Jesus uh, in his lifelong ministry. And so... This morning, I come to you with this thought, because if any of you read a Baptist Press this week, uh, you would have seen the statistics for the Southern Baptist Convention in 2018. So again, that's holding up the idea of dealing with the real kind of situation. So one of the things that struck me uh, very, very powerfully while Jenny, Jenny and I were there was how Jesus so strongly impacted the world in which he lived and then why aren't we doing a better job today of impacting the world in which we live? Now, we do know that we've done greater things than the Lord in the sense that those who saw him physically and either did or did not respond to him, for those of us who are here by faith today in Christ, we believed in him and we haven't seen him. Or oh, we've read about him, we picture him in our minds, but we haven't seen him. But yet, for a small group of men who followed him and his ministry... Uh, being really compact for three and a half years, there were literally thousands whose lives were transformed, but now there are more than 2.2 billion people on earth that call themselves Christian. So in some senses, yes, we have uh, continued to grow, yet the Southern Baptist uh, statistics this week that were shown and revealed aren't very good. In fact, in almost every area of church life, we are either plateaued or declining, except in one area, and that's the area of giving. Giving has literally increased over the last year, but baptisms are down, membership is down, uh, people getting involved with Bible study is down, VBS is down. I mean, there's so many things that are down, and so it causes me to, to kind of question my own uh, life in a sense, because I'm your evangelism director. In 2017, we had an increase in, ba in, in baptisms, only one of seven states, but this past year, we had a 20% decrease in baptisms. That hasn't happened since 2000. 
I mean, there's very variating things that might cause that, but, you know, the bottom line is, are we still on mission? Are we still about the business of advancing the kingdom, about telling the story, the good news of Jesus Christ? And if he's impacted your life, I hope you're telling other people uh, how he can impact their life. And so I want you to take your Bibles this morning, and I really want to just speak to you. If you guys have just put up the opening cell, I saw you, that's Seneca Lake behind me I see up there in it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you've got the Sea of Galilee already up there. So, so uh, let me just kind of show you, um, maybe tell you a little bit this morning about what's taking place uh, in, uh, in the context of Scripture, scripture in math, math, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 4, chapter 5, and part of chapter 6. So if you think about it right uh, here, uh, this is a rather large city, okay? So this is the Sea of Galilee, and... <clears throat> Jesus did most of his ministry from here to Capernaum. 80% of the things that are contained in the four Gospels, he did right there. And you hear a lot of times about the Bible telling us, you know, he went across the Sea of Galilee or he went along the Sea of Galilee. And so if you think about this, at its very length, it's only 10 and a half miles long. At its widest breadth, it's four and a half miles wide. Uh, there's only 32 miles of shoreline, and again, remember, they would have walked all the time as their mode of transportation, and there's 65 square miles. Uh, this is still in Israel today the number one source of water for them as they think about their sustenance of living, and so I want to read for you some, some things and make some comments about missions today as it relates to Mark's gospel. So, if you remember what Mark, uh, who he was, we know that he was a believer. We know that there was a church in his mother's house in Jerusalem. We know that he, um, uh, many think that he was uh, the person who wrote the first gospel, Mark's gospel. He would have gotten most of his information by traveling with Peter. He would have had an opportunity at least a couple times to minister alongside of Paul. In fact, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, which was launched out of the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. But very, very shortly thereafter, by the time they get to Paphos, the Bible tells us that Mark abandoned that team and he went back to Jerusalem. Well, then after that team had already gone through the world, the known world at the time, uh, which would have been way up here in the churches of Asia Minor in that area, they come back to uh, give a report to Antioch, and then they get ready to launch a second missionary journey and Barnabas says, well, we're going to take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no, we're not. Because Mark was with us on the first trip, but he left. And so, therefore, the, the ministry is going to be tough again. And we don't want people who are going to join the mission team and then leave the mission team. So I don't want him to come. Well, then there was a sharp disagreement, the Bible says, so that Paul eventually would take Silas as his partner. And Barnabas, who is a cousin to Mark, would take Mark. And so the one mission team would be Two mission teams. And then for about a period of 12 years, we don't know much about the relationship, but we do know that Philemon in, first, in Colossians 1 tells us that as Paul began to serve the Lord and as he began to be imprisoned and, and persecuted for his faith, we know that Mark came back alongside of him so much uh, so to the point while he was incarcerated in Rome, Mark helped him. And then when he was about ready to die in, in 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy and he says, listen, Make sure that you tell Mark to come to me because I have found him to be of service to me in ministry. And so when Mark writes his gospel, all these things are taking place in his life. 
And Mark's emphasis really is to show Jesus constantly, I mean constantly, on the move in his mission. And his mission was to tell the world of who God really is and, and you know, what God is doing. And so as, as Mark writes, you see Jesus going from place to place, contacting people, different people, different places, impacting their lives with the ministry. And so the first four chapters of, of Mark take place from uh, right here about uh, at Magdala all the way up to Capernaum. In fact, much of what is mentioned in the first four chapters takes place in Capernaum. It would have been Jesus' ministry center. It would have been where Peter lived. It would have been where the first uh, apostles were called as they were fishermen there. And then the Bible talks about in chapter 5, beginning in chapter 5, the Bible says that he crosses over. You see this Gergesa there? That would have been the place called the Gerasenes. That's where he runs into the demoniac who's lost his mind, has been chained and causing havoc to everybody. And, and Jesus miraculously changes his life and, and casts the demon, the, the demon called Legion, which are many, out of his life. And so he's on the west side, and he travels over here to the east side. And then we want to pick up the reading of the text, beginning in verse 21, with, with this thought that missions is really leaving the church to grow the church, leaving the church to grow the church. <clears throat> and the main thing I want you to think about, if you're following along in your outline there, is that when we participate in missions... We observe the power and purpose of God at work. And that's what Mark is telling us as we participate in missions. So someone might say, so what is missions? Think of this. Missions is either, is, is either the vocational or voluntary call of God in your life to go tell other people about Jesus. That's all missions is. It's you or someone else being called to go tell others about Jesus, about God and what he's done for you in Christ. So I'm going to ask you if you will to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about the mission of the church and ask, is FBC Groveport fulfilling your mission? Or are you doing it well? And if you're not, what needs to be changed and what needs to be corrected, what needs to be enhanced? This is how Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter 5, verse 21, when he says this. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, so he had, go back to my, uh, my map for a second, I'm sorry guys. So he had been on this side, he had crossed over, over here's where he's, uh, the, the cities of the Decapolis, as you see these little, actually those are little beaches there now in this map, but there would have been 10 cities along the eastern uh, shore, we call the cities of, of the Decapolis. And so Jesus has come across the Sea of Galilee, first four chapters here. He comes across the beginning of chapter 5, and then he goes back across the Sea of Galilee in chapter 5. So he's going back from the east to the west, and that's where we pick up our story. So when Jesus had crossed over again by boat, he'd gone back to the west side, he says, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. And one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and kept begging him, my little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she had been cured of her affliction. 
Well, at once Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my robes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and you say, who touched me? So he was looking around to see who had done this. Well, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, well, this is again Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. So they came to the synagogue leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, which is what you would do when someone dies. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. Well, they started laughing at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, those who were with him, and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and just said to her, Talitha Koum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, and she was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. And then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. So this girl has died. He uses the word asleep. He's raised her back to life, and now he says, give her something to eat. Chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and that could have either, either been Capernaum, which was considered his second hometown, or it might have even been Nazareth. And he, his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach them in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother James and Hoseus and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters with us? So they were offended by him. Well, then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. So he was not able to do many miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, and he healed them. It's interesting that Jesus said, and he, Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. May the Lord have his blessing to the hearing, reading, the doing of his word. You may be seated. I want to share just four quick thoughts with you this morning as we think about what does it mean to be on mission? What does it mean to leave the church so that the church might be growing? Well, let me ask you this. Who do you emulate today in life? If you were picking a model for life that you would want to imitate, who would that person be? You know, we live in the world of rock star mentality, don't we? Uh, since the video age has come and since Facebook has come and since we have all this information that has come to the world, uh, I find myself sometimes thinking, why do we listen to all that junk or look at all that junk? Because oftentimes the people that people are emulating because of that junk really isn't somebody you should emulate. There's a lot of great models out there. There's a lot of great churches, a lot of great, great programs and models out there. But when it comes to doing what you do as a Christian, who do you model yourself after? Well, obviously, the obvious answer is who? Jesus. So Jesus is the model for missions. The model for missions is Jesus. If you want to impact your world, observe the life of Jesus and do what Jesus did. Now you say, wait a minute, I'm not the son of God. Yeah, but you're a child of God. 
And the power of God, the very power that enabled Jesus to be resurrected from the grave, enables us to be resurrected from the grave. We have that power available to us. So I, I ask myself sometimes, even as a pastor, as a church leader, why don't I use that power more often? Why don't I believe in that power more often? Why don't I see that power more manifest in my life and other people's lives all the time? There are several things that jump off the page in the reading of the text uh, that help me to understand Jesus. Jesus' practice basically was to preach, to teach, and to heal. As he traveled his world, he was preaching about the kingdom. He was teaching about the kingdom. He was preaching about repentance. And he was healing all manner of sickness and disease. He was just coming alongside people who were hurting. Another thing that jumps off the page at me is that he made himself approachable and he made himself available. So how many of you have been to an Ohio State football game? Either when you're coming or you're going, normally when you're going, especially for people who are trying to get out of the stadium pretty quickly, it can be like herding cows, can it? I mean, you're, you're going up and down the stairs, you're coming down the ramps, or you're waiting on an elevator, and people are just sardined. So imagine if Jesus were at Ohio Stadium next Saturday, how many people would show up? I would think it'd be standing room only, and they'd probably be putting people on field too, right? So imagine if he's trying to exit Ohio Stadium, all the people who would be pressing around him either to get a selfie, an autograph, a touch. I mean, it, it would be chaos, wouldn't it? So imagine that in his day. He's just walking from place to place, but the crowds are pressing against him. And as the crowds are pressing against him, here's Jay Iris, a pretty prominent man because he's a synagogue leader, somehow presses his way through that, throws himself at the feet of Jesus and says, hey, my daughter is sick near death. Will you come and help me? Okay. Approachable. Available. Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you. And he begins to. So now he's going down to Jairus' house, and all of a sudden, someone touches the hem of his garment. He, he understands that his power has been manifest, that that power has been released because someone is responding to him by faith, and it makes him take note. He stops and goes, okay, who touched me? You ever, you ever been there? Jenny and I, as we were in uh, Israel, we went to the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and uh, after walking the uh, Via Dolorosa, we come to this place where traditionally they think that the burial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus took place, and there's a rock there that, you know, is pretty good size, and People were trying to press to that rock so that they could either touch it, they could kiss it, they could take a picture of it, whatever. And it is a rock, probably not the rock, but a rock very similar to the time of Jesus, where it would have been where he would have been crucified, traditionally thinking. And it was chaos. Jenny, I had Jenny by the hand, and we were trying to make our way. In fact, one of the funny things is, is we were trying to, uh, to uh, go into this church where all this is at. Our, uh, our Israeli guy said, you Americans don't be nice today. Because people are going to be pressing, literally pressing to get to that rock. And if you want to see that rock, if you want to touch that rock, you're going to have to press too. So this is what's taking place with Jesus. Yet in the midst of that pressing, someone touches him not, uh, enough to the significance that he stops and goes, okay, who touched me? Who touched my robes? Apostles, who touched me? Well, what do you mean, who touched you? It's chaos here. Do you think we know? Well, the woman who has a responsibility now because her life has been changed like that says, it's me. 
I'm the one who touched you. And then he tell, she tells him her story. It is like, well, why'd you do it? He knew, but she tells him her story about what had happened, how long she'd had this issue of blood. And so what does Jesus do? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go, you're now healed from this infirmity. So if you and I want to do the things and impact our world, Groveport, Ohio, or Canal Winchester, or Lithopolis, or, or Columbus, whatever, then what we have to do is we have to look to the model, and the model for missions is Jesus. If we can do only a quarter of what he does and a quarter of the passion and desire that he did, he did it in, we would impact our world. Imagine what would happen if we do it in its entirety, in its fullness. The second thing I want to do is, once you notice, is what's the motive for missions? Why do you do what you do as a church? Why do you do what you do as a Christian? Sometimes I think maybe it's out of obligation. Sometimes it's opportunity. Sometimes it's just maybe the expectation of what people expect you to do. But what really fires you up? You know, I'm a Columbus Blue Jacket fan. Had an opportunity to to see them in the first round when they won uh, and knocked out Tampa Bay. And I can tell you, when I'm in Nationwide Arena, I can lose my mind when I'm watching the Blue Jackets. When they're playing well, I'm up, I'm screaming, I'm, you know, got a voice that's going hoarse. Uh, I'm yelling at officials, even though I am one. Uh, you know, so, so you basically lose your mind. But the reason why I'm there is because I have a passion for watching this CBJ play. The hope that they could advance farther than they did. And as I think about that, I wonder how passionate I am, how much motivated I am to do the everyday things in ministry that are necessary to improve my life and to help other people in their lives. So as we think about Jesus as the model, what really motivated him? And there's three little simple words. He loved people, he helped people, and he was constantly sharing himself and sharing the the good news of the kingdom of God with those that he came in contact with. You know, the Bible says, greater love had no man than a man lay down his life for a friend. John 3.16 says it this way, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17 says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, let's think about that in the context of our everyday lives when we see all the chaos going on in the world right now. Are there some people that you wake up every day and you're mad at? You're thinking, I could never love that person. They do this, or they speak soundly about that. I'm thinking of a movie uh, many years ago that said uh, the American president was the name of the movie. I think uh, Kirk Douglas's son played the, the lead part, and one of the parts in the movie is he's president. He says, how can you stand at the top of your lungs and proclaim something that you think right, and then somebody does exactly 100% the opposite? How do you two come together? Or you might say, how do you two love one another? How do you love somebody who you know you're 100% opposed to? 100%. Might even go 1,000%. How can you love that person? How do you love what you perceive to be the unlovable? That's what God did in Christ. Because to be quite frank, friend, prior to Christ, and maybe even sometimes after Christ, we're not that lovable. We all have our little closets of sin and our compartments of sin and our compartments of things. We said, oh, that's just how I'm wired. Well, you know what? If that's the way we're wired and most of us are wired the same, man, we are miswired. (laughs) But Jesus' motive was love. 
Part of that love compelled him to go beyond Nazareth to the world. Part of that was his motive was because his, God, his father, God the Father, had called him to a mission. And as he's going about that and loving people that were unlovable, because in his day, the people who had approached him most of the time were people that were outcasts of society, and nobody loved them. Didn't want to have anything to do with them. Didn't want to help them, didn't want to be around them. I mean, this woman herself had so many things that would have been ostracized in her life because of her condition that she would have probably been almost a hermit, completely not thought of. Probably had very few friends, lonely most of her life probably. Yet, Jesus, because he loves humanity, helps this woman. And the Bible really is a book of helps, isn't it? It's how he's helped you and me. And as he's doing that, he's sharing the good news of the kingdom. So let's think about modern day uh, Ohio. Uh, and more importantly, let's think about Groveport, Ohio. You know, you just got a, a, a new high school built, a new addition built. I know that over the last, I've been in Canal Winchester for 15 years. I've known of this church for a lot longer than that. Uh, and I know that every community has its uh, issues, right? There's political issues, there's school board issues, uh, there's violence issues, there's ethnic issues, there's all these issues going on. So how does a church get itself involved in those issues and love the unlovable, help people who really need help, and then share the good news of the gospel with them? Friends, that's challenging. That's not easy. You can't be a wimp and be a Christian today. If you are, oh my goodness, you, you just can't be a wimp and be a Christian anymore. You know, as boldly as the LBGTQ uh, community is speaking up, Christians need to be speaking just as loudly, but with love and compassion and commitment to the things that the Bible says are true and good. That doesn't mean we just shut up, and that doesn't mean we condemn, because remember, Christ came to the world, God sent him not to condemn the world, but to save the world. I've always just said this about that particular community, and I have a niece who's that. I have friends who are, are gay to this day. But I said all they need to do is see a better alternative and a real alternative before them. And you can't do that from way back here. you got to get up close and personal. Jesus got up close and personal with people. So no matter what segment of society, maybe you don't, um, you know, we have some white skin and some black skin and some brown skin in the auditorium this morning. You can't get to know people from way back here. you got to get up close and personal. And sometimes that makes you very uncomfortable, but that's the only way you get to know. Jesus wanted to know people. He loved people. He wanted to help people. He wanted to share the good news, and the only way he could do that was to go where they gathered. He went where they were, and then all the chaos that happened around that, he ministered to the glory of God in the midst of it. And that's what we should do every single day of our lives. It's not easy. Very hard. In fact, we don't even have the capacity to do it. God in Christ in us, we do. So that's the motive. Now, what's the misery of missions? The misery is just simply this. It's unbelief. It's just unbelief. Unbelief is really the absence of faith. The absence of faith. And yet all of us exercise faith every day, don't we? I mean, you're sitting in a pew right now by faith. Because if you didn't have faith that it could hold you up, you probably would not have sat in it because you're afraid it would have collapsed under you, right? 
This morning when we went and got in our cars and put the key in the ignition and turned the ignition or pushed the button, we had the faith that that car was going to start, that it had enough gas in it, that there was enough mechanical goodness in it that it's going to get us from A to B, right? We do that all the time. We exercise faith all the time. But then there are people who are just unbelieving. And normally people who are unbelieving accompany their unbelief with criticism. That's what takes place in the context of this story. The criticism comes from those over back to his own hometown who, when he goes back into his hometown, they're like, you're just one of us. Why are you, you know, we know that your teaching's good, but goodness, you're just one of us. You're a nobody. So what did they do? They were appalled at him. They were offended by him. You know, it's easy to throw rocks at other people, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Because when we throw rocks at other people, it makes us look better. It makes us feel better. In, in, in some sense, it esteems us a little higher. And if we can esteem ourselves a little higher, that means we can think of ourselves a little bit better than those people who are not like me. And so it's easy to criticize. And I believe in my heart that one of the reasons why we're not impacting the world who is unbelieving is that we criticize too much. We condemn too much. I'm thinking of a song by commission that says, I came to Jesus as I was. And then Jesus does the cleaning up. <laughs> He's the one that provides the soap and water to cleanse us, right? But sometimes we just don't want to get there. Why? Because it's hard when you run into people who don't believe. Have any of you witnessed in the last year, last month, last week, and somebody says, I just don't believe that? I mean, that's just fantasy, really. you got to be a pretty weak person to believe in a Bible that's just stories made up by men. It's really just fantasy. It's not reality. I mean, that happens all the time. But yet we know that our, our lives before Christ were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We have seared minds and consciences and heart that we really can't be enlightened to the light of the world unless he does the enlightening. And then what we had to do is we had to be light shining in the darkness, that salt and that light, in a way that's attractive to the world so that their unbelief and criticism comes to belief and joy. And I think we're far too difficult sometimes that we just don't get involved with the difficulty of life. Many times Jesus would say, he who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an eye, let him see. And he would always call people, even as he called to Jairus. Jairus just gets the word from the, uh, the servants, and they don't really esteem Jesus because they call him teacher. They don't call him prophet. They don't call him Lord. And listen, don't bother the teacher no more. And Jesus overhears and says, listen, don't you believe that. You just believe. In the midst of their unbelief, don't you just, don't you not, don't you believe them. You believe me. And then when he goes to his hometown, I'm more than just a carpenter's son, by the way, y'all. I am, if you'll just believe. So what we have to do, friends, is live our life in such a way that even as we're doing this, uh, the motive of our mission, and we're looking at the model of our mission, even in the midst of the, in my life now, the greatest criticism and unbelief in the world in my life, but that still doesn't keep me from doing what God's called me to do. And it shouldn't keep you from doing what God's called you to do whatever that calling may be. And that doesn't mean it has to be vocational ministry like me. It could be voluntary ministry like you're just doing anything you're doing in the world every day, day in, going about the highways and byways of your own personal life. 
you're going to get criticized. In fact, Jesus would even say it a little bit more boldly than that. He said, listen, they hated me. They're going to hate you. And we've been fortunate in our lifetimes, everybody sitting in this room, that we've lived in a country where right now people don't necessarily hate Christians, but that day's fast approaching. Starting to show its ugly head more and more every day. And it's only going to get worse, I believe. But will we throw in the towel and quit? Or will we keep at it? And I think the last point I want to make is why we keep at it. Because the miracle of missions is changed lives. It's changed lives. Have you forgotten? If you're you're here this morning and you know Jesus, can you remember when you got saved? Can you just remember that moment, that time when you came to know Jesus? Now, I would hope you would say a resounding amen with me that when that happened, it changed your life. You're not the same person that you once were. You don't think the same thoughts. You don't say the same things. You don't do the same things. Uh, You've gotten over some of those other things. But Jesus comes to change lives. If any man be in Christ, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Change lives. Now let's think for a moment. Let's get beyond our lives. Let's think about somebody you love, somebody you'd like to see them have a changed life by the power of the gospel. Just Can you picture them in your mind? How are you modeling Jesus to them? How are you loving them? How are you helping them? How are you sharing with love and compassion at the right time by God giving you the words to share to them the good news of how Jesus has changed your life? Maybe they're being critical. Oh, that's good for you to believe, but not for me. And as Jesus said and reiterated, oftentimes that happens in our own families. In our own families, people that we love and love us and know us and we know them, but yet in our own families, they go, well, that's okay for you, but not for me. I don't believe that. And that's why we get on our faces before the Lord. That's why we shed tears for people to come to Christ. Because we know that God can change their life. And if you were to read uh, the first uh, preceding chapters of uh, what I read, in chapter 1, there's a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, and Jesus encounters him, and he casts the demon out. And then he goes immediately from there over to Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And he casts out the demon of sickness in her life. And then if you go to chapter 2, there's a man who has a paralytic hand. Or excuse me, the the lame man who the guys, uh, so many people were pressing around Jesus that they can't find a way to him. So what do they do? They dig a hole up in the roof and drop him down. And then the next chapter is a man on the Sabbath with a withered hand, and and the Lord miraculously uh, cleanses him. And this leper, uh, his hand is is made new. And then in chapter 4, he talks about what the kingdom of God is like, what planting the seeds of salvation is like in, in the soils, different kinds of soils. He calls his apostles to himself. He talks to them about the kingdom, and then he goes, okay, I've taught you enough. Now let's go over to the other side. And that's where he encounters the demonic forces that are called legion in this man. And he, he casts those out and into the pigs, and the pigs run over the mountain. They, they run into the sea. And then he comes back across, and there's this very, very wealthy man, this very, very respectful 
respected man who's a religious leader, and he comes to him and he says, can you help me? My daughter is dying. Yes, I can. Let's go. Oh, by the way, on the way, there's a woman that needs some help also. And because she touches the hem of his garment, he heals her. Then he goes and he does the thing that he was asked to do by Jairus, and he heals the daughter. And every single one of them, we don't hear much about her mother, Jairus' wife, but the mother's in the room when it happens. What about Peter and James and John? Now they've seen something that they've never seen. Changed lives. That's why we do what we do. Because God has the power to change lives. And you know what? I hope you never get over your changed life. Oh, yeah, there's periods of wilderness. There's periods of rut. We all have those. There are times when you think, Lord... Can it get better than what it is right now? Yeah. But we got to be committed, right? As Mark says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So what's FBC Groveport doing to impact your community? Are you showing, are you following the model? Are you excited and have motive and passion to change your world? Or is the criticism wearing you out? But ultimately, the joy of service is changed lives. I'll never get over August of 1970. It's when my brother Ray led me to Christ. I know people in this room because my brother led me to Christ. I wouldn't be standing here preaching for you today if my brother wouldn't have had a motto in Jesus and the love to share with me and to help me and at times when I was very critical of him to lead me to Christ and change my unbelief to belief because of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you whether it's losing weight, getting a fresher mind, getting in a relationship, whatever the case may be in a changed life that Jesus brings about. There's so much joy and satisfaction in that. There's excitement in that. So I hope you never get over being saved. In fact, one of the things I think that hinders us from seeing more people come to Christ is we're just not as excited as we should be about knowing the Lord. I've been in the world. It doesn't satisfy. It just does not satisfy. Don't care how much money you have, how much prestige, how many names you got on a plate somewhere. It doesn't matter. None of that satisfies. Only Christ can help us with that yearning. So my question to you this morning as we close, do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Are you still walking and talking because the power of the Holy Spirit in your life has changed your life so much so that you hope you never get over it? And I hope you never get over it. Do you know somebody who needs his help today? Do you need his help today? How can he use you this week to help someone? that you might be able to get involved with their lives. And you know what, friends? <laughs> if you're going to do ministry today, it's ugly. Everybody has drama, amen? Everybody has drama, ourselves included. But I'm grateful that the best actor in the world, the Savior of the world, came to us in the midst of our drama and shared with us and loved us and accepted us and challenged us and by his Spirit he has changed us. Can we do anything less? Let's pray together. Father, for your glory, we say thanks. Uh, for your good news, we say thanks. 
for the lessons of life contained in your infallible, eternal, inspired, preserved word, we say thanks. Even though we can look in the rearview mirror, we know that you're still the same God in Christ today who's doing things in this world in our day. And Lord, as the man who would say to your apostles and say to you when they couldn't cast the demon out of his child, Lord, help us in our unbelief. We know you're a great and mighty God and you can do anything. So help us to yield to you and believe that. I pray for the person today who's wavering. May they believe that they can be all things in Christ. The person who's ready to throw in the towel that they can be resurged today because of Christ. For the person who's struggling in their spirit right now, do I really know God? I know of him, but do I really know him? Maybe you pricked their heart today. They might say, you know what? I know of God, but I don't know God. I need to know God. I need to place my faith and my trust in him. So whatever you want to accomplish, however we need to respond, we'll give you glory for that. Thank you for the seed of faith that's been planted in our hearts and minds this morning. May we take that seed and grow in it and grow by it for your glory and for the betterment of ourselves and for the good of others. We pray that and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.